You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. The summer of 2008 was a life-changing summer for me. It was my first summer working at the Wilds Christian Camp, where our teens just went, actually, and where Gabe Jaime is working this summer. And really, there were two major reasons why it was life-changing for me. And they're probably both a little unexpected. The first is that I met my wife that summer, and that obviously uh, changes your life when you meet your spouse. Now, we didn't start dating for another four years because it took me a while to figure figure out what was good for me. But we met in the dining hall uh, around food. I mean, what better way can you meet someone, right? Uh, My cabin of junior campers, fourth to sixth graders, ate so much food, and the waitress was so slow providentially that I had to turn around and ask the the girl counselor behind me for more food, and that was Kate. And she was more than happy to give it to me because she had five younger brothers and knew what growing boys needed to eat. So we met that summer and uh, started our friendship there. But second, the second major reason that that summer was life-changing for me is because I was introduced to the tree. And you're thinking, are you lunatic? (laughs) The tree, this tree, uh, this tree here coming up on the screen right there. I'm not a tree hugger. I'm not a pagan who goes in the mountains and worships trees, okay? But this tree was used as a model or a framework for our counseling. So the first day, the second day that we were there at, at, at the camp, learning how to counsel, because that was going to be my job that summer, they introduced us to this model because it really pictures for us how to help someone change. Change in the Christian life is not surface deep. And this diagram helps you to understand that the fruits of someone's life go much deeper than just their fruit. There's a lot of things taking place under the surface. And as I started to get into it, I thought, this is a little bit strange. There's some people really excited about this tree, and I'm kind of like, what's wrong with them? And over time, as I learned how to use it and learned the benefit of, wow, it, it, it actually does help me think about my own spiritual life, I learned actually to counsel myself. I learned how to frame my problems or my struggles in light of the Word of God to understand the roots of those problems, and then to be able to have lasting change by the grace of God. So what does this tree have to do with us? Why am I showing this to you right now? And the short answer is, not just that I love it, and not that it's just helpful, but it actually fits into our study of Colossians right here. So we've been studying through Colossians for the last seven months or so, and we've been seeing that there was a problem in Colossae. There was an issue going on in the church that the Apostle Paul wanted to address. There was a false teaching, a false worldview that was telling people that Jesus was was only good enough to take you so far spiritually. You needed to do other things and follow this other really great teacher, this celebrity teacher, to make spiritual progress. So Paul starts out extolling the glory of Jesus. And if you've been with us, you've seen that that Christ Jesus is the treasure, the crown jewel of, of all the universe, and that he ought to be the crown jewel of our lives. And that when we come to faith in him, we are changed. Our identities are made new. We're now united to Jesus. And so we are redeemed and made holy 
and reconciled and forgiven. That's all in Colossians chapter 1. And as made holy, as redeemed by Jesus, the rest of our lives is continued to live out through that relationship. In fact, Colossians 2, 6 and 7 really summarizes the gist of the book. Just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, you remember what it says? So walk in him. In the same way that you receive Jesus as Savior, continue to live out your Christian life. And in the rest of chapter 2, Paul talks about how not to walk. He says, don't go after all these other false teachings. Don't go after these other philosophies. Don't, don't think that, that something apart from Jesus will make you spiritually complete or will help you to grow. And, and really, these things strike at our hearts even today. Because we saw in verses 15 through 23 that religious rituals don't grow you. Just showing up week after week and doing your, your, your religious duty and checking a box, that doesn't grow you. Religious experience doesn't grow you either. Having this overwhelming feeling of, of glory or, or the transcendent, that, that might be nice from time to time, but if you don't have that, can you grow? Absolutely, because growth is not in an experience, it's in a person. And the third thing that Paul points out is that growth doesn't take place in rules or regulations. This false teaching in, in Colossae had a lot of, a lot of stipulations, some very careful lines that, that, that you couldn't cross, and it wasn't leading to anything. In fact, Paul says at the end of the chapter, verse 23, that these rules were of no value in stopping what? The indulgence of the flesh. These rules can't prevent sin from growing in our hearts because you can't legislate your heart. So how are we to live then? How are we to walk in Christ? Well, chapter three, verses one through four, which is actually the last sermon we had in Colossians several weeks ago, calls us to set our affections on things above, to turn our hearts and our minds and our bodies even toward heavenly things. That if Jesus is my treasure, if he's the greatest thing about me and I'm living for him and I'm willing to die for him, then the rest of my heart must follow that. And now, starting in verse 5 of Colossians 3, all the way through chapter 4, verse 6, Paul is going to show us how a life that exalts Jesus as its treasure and a life that sets its affections on things above lives day to day. Because those decisions, those orientations of our life have a very practical, tangible effect on us. And where we find the tree is in verses 9 through 10. Because the tree helps us to understand how to change. The tree reminds us that change is more than surface deep. And when we come to a passage like this and we start reading, you know, don't do this, verse 5, put to death these things, and there's a list. And then in verse 12, as God's children, add these things to your life. It's very easy to slip back into performance in your Christian life. Oh, I got to stop doing this over here and I got to start doing this. You know what we call that? That's behavior modification. That's not biblical. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You mean that I don't have to put off certain things or put on certain things? No, that's not what I'm saying. 
But what I am saying is that simply looking at, well, I got to stop doing this and start doing this, that's not good enough spiritually. Because the issues that we have are more than surface level. We have to get to the roots. Christians change by getting to the roots, by getting to the heart of the problem. And verses 9 through 10, in the middle of this passage, show us the answer. So instead of starting in verse 5 in this passage, what we're going to do is, is distill out for us this framework of spiritual growth in verses 9 through 10. And then starting next week, we're going to go back to verse 5 and start walking our way through it. But my prayer is that as we start to work through the text, we'll understand that change is more than just don't do this or do this that there's transformation that takes place through this process. Well, what's the process? If you look at verses 9 and 10, there are three steps to this process. Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. It's in there. How do Christians change? That's really the big question we're asking. How do Christians change? And Christians change, it's a long answer that we'll unpack. Christians change through grace-driven effort, which involves the put-off, renew, put-on process as pictured by the tree. How do Christians change? Here it is. And the reason we need to understand what the Bible teaches us about change is that if we don't grasp the biblical teaching, we're going to live discouraged and defeated. How how many of you have ever been convicted about something in your spiritual lives? Maybe at church or through your Bible reading or, or someone else confronted you and you're like, ooh, that's an area of my life that needs to change. And then three weeks later, you haven't made any progress at all. That ever happened to anyone else other than me? <laughs> it happens, doesn't it? And, and what effect does that have on our hearts? It's discouraging. It's demoralizing. We start thinking, is the problem with me or with Jesus? Well, it can't be with him. So what's wrong with me? Why can't I change? And if that goes on long enough, what do we start thinking? We actually start thinking, I can't change. And that is actually what the gospel does not teach. The gospel teaches us that no sinner is too sinful to not change. The gospel teaches us that the power of God through Christ is sufficient for any problem. And so if you're struggling with your own sin issues today, maybe you feel like you've been trapped in these things for for years, months, years, decades even, there is hope. There's hope. And it's not found in your head or in your heart. It's found in the word of God. And as you understand and unleash the word of God in your life, the Bible says that you can change. And it starts then through grace-driven effort. We need to pause and talk about this for a moment. Christians change through grace-driven effort. Now, our text here today focuses more on the effort side of the equation. But I would be negligent if I did not remind us 
that our effort is one of the two parts at this equation. That the grace of God is what enables us to change in the first place. And if you're measuring effort and grace, God's grace comes in way heavier than our effort. Jerry Bridges talks about this in several of his books, and he calls this concept dependent discipline. Dependent discipline. It's the same idea, grace-driven effort, dependent discipline. He uses the example in his book, The Discipline of Grace, he uses the example of an airplane with two wings. Imagine if you went out to DIA and you're flying on vacation and you're boarding the plane and you glance out the window and you realize there is no left wing. What are you going to do next? I'm not getting on that plane. I don't care what the, what the pilot says, what the flight attendants say. I don't care what the other passengers do. I'm not getting on the plane. I need, both, I need to see both wings before I commit my life to that vehicle. Sanctification has two wings on the airplane. We need God's grace, and we also give our effort to grow. And as I mentioned a moment ago, our effort doesn't match God's grace. A friend of mine at the Wilds, where I just was a couple weeks ago, says it this way. We pour a teaspoon of effort, and God backs up a dump truck of grace. Now, this synergy is taught throughout the New Testament. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 is probably the simplest or maybe the clearest description of our effort and God's grace in a single text. It says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. So there are two parts, right? The command at the beginning of verse 12 is to work out, to exercise your faith. It's an imperative. It's something you you don't get to think about doing. You must do it. What's the reason that we are able to work out our salvation? For it's the Lord God who's working in you. He's the one that's giving you the strength and the effort and the grace to begin with. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am, Paul says, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So who is responsible to change in Paul's view? It was God's grace and his effort, grace-driven effort. Now, this, this concept flies in the face of two very common misunderstandings of how we change. Here's what, here's what I'm going to call them. The first is passivity. It's the let go and let God. This is a total, you could say, quote unquote, a total, dependent on, to, total dependence on God's grace. Well, God's just going to do the work for me. All I got to do is just sit back and let him do it. And you eat your potato chips and you sit on the couch. And you know how much you change? You don't. The major problem with this is that it ignores all the commands of the Bible. In fact, if you read through Colossians 3, there are 20 different commands that we must obey. This sounds spiritual though, doesn't it? Well, I'm just gonna let go and let God. I'm just gonna let God do his work in me. Well, that's true, and maybe we even say that, but if you have no responsibility in the equation, God is not gonna overrule your laziness. You have to put your effort in. So the results is that there are no spiritual progress. It cultivates laziness in our lives. And ultimately, what does it lead to? 
it leads to hopelessness. Because no matter how much you let go, sin still grips you. The problem is not letting go of sin. It's, it's Colossians 3, 5, putting to death the sin that's in us. That requires some effort. Now, on the other side of it is the other mistake that we fall into. It's the idea of working harder. It's all up to me. It, it, and none of us would say these things, okay? But we have to confront our hearts on this. This is the view that says, oh, yes, Jesus alone for salvation. He's the one that got me into the Christian race. But the thinking would say something like, now it's my responsibility to run. He drops me off at the starting line, and he'll kind of drive around. He'll meet me at the finish line. Everything from start to finish is on me. And that's not right either. That's not true either. The problem is that sanctification is of God's grace just like salvation. Galatians 3.3, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you being now made perfect by the flesh? Having been saved by grace, are you being sanctified by your work? Paul says if you think that way, you're actually foolish. Titus 2, 11 through 12, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So, yes, God gives me the grace, but the grace is what trains me to resist certain things and to say yes to other things. When we say that it's all up to me and we just have to work harder, it's really a performance-based approach to spiritual things. And it's actually a sign of, of deep pride. We could even call it hubris. Uh, Bruce and I, Bruce Bader and I, were talking several weeks ago, and he said that the original sin of America is hubris, the ability that we can solve all of our problems on our own. And isn't that true in our Christian lives sometimes? I can solve all my problems on my own. I don't need the Spirit of God. I don't need the Word of God. I certainly don't need the people of God. I can just do it. If I work hard enough, I can do it. And if you're naturally disciplined like I am, you can easily fall into this. I've fallen into this. That for me to make some, some progress in my life, I just got to put a little more effort in and it'll go farther. Not necessarily. The results of this work harder idea is, is lifestyle reform maybe. Maybe you change on the surface, but it's not transformation. It's not godly. It definitely cultivates legalism. It creates judgmentalism in your heart because you're looking at your own effort versus someone else, and now our focus is all in the wrong spot. And ultimately, it also leads to hopelessness because no effort can defeat the power of sin. So you have on one hand, you can't let go of sin enough because it holds on to you, and on the other hand, no matter what you do, sin is not going to be defeated with human hands. Sin was crucified where? At the cross. You need the grace of God while you obey the commands of God. That's why sanctification is dependent discipline or grace-driven effort. And maybe you've, you've been realizing as I've been talking here for a moment that, that you've made a subtle mistake in your thinking that I've been, I've been viewing my spiritual life as one of these two extremes, maybe not the full length of it, but, but I've been drifting toward one or the other. And my friend, you need to change your thinking. You need to confess that because you're not going to be able to make progress just 
passively living life or trying to do it all in your own strength. Perhaps you need to confess laziness on one side and a friend of yours, someone else may need to confess pride for the other view. Laziness for, I'm just gonna let go and let God, now I can do whatever I want. And pride for, it's all up to me. What's really interesting is that when we actually have the biblical view of how Christians change, there's peace in our hearts. Because growth and change are not entirely dependent on you. You do your responsibility, you give your teaspoon, and God supplies the grace. He brings his dump truck in, and he does the work. Now, since God always holds up his end of the bargain, let's zoom in a little bit on our responsibility. Because the process of change, our effort side of it, involves three steps. And that's in verses 9 and 10. Three steps, the first of which is to put off. The second is renew. The third is put on. So there's the put off, renew, put on process. First is we put off the old man with his sinful fruits. Now the first question in my mind is, who is this old man? I like to think of myself as still being younger. I'm in middle age, according to some here in our church. But I'm not an old man. So who's the old man? The old man is who we used to be in Adam. It's a category, Romans 5 explains, that all people were born under sin in Adam. But when they came to faith in Christ, they switched categories. And now they're under grace and they belong to Jesus. They're in Christ. So the new man represents Christ. We're going to see him in a moment. The old man represents the way we used to live in our sins. When did we put off the old man? And the answer is at salvation. If you look back to chapter 211, maybe scroll once. It's on the same page in my Bible. Chapter 211, Paul writes, In Jesus, you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh. Putting off is the same word used in 3.9. When did we put the old man off? When we were circumcised with Christ. He tore that old man off and set him aside. Now, Romans 6, which... I would love to go dive into that for a few moments, but we don't have time. Romans 6 talks about the effects of that on us, and it's glorious. Sin doesn't have dominion over us anymore. Sin is not our master. Sin doesn't control us. Christ does. Grace does. And lest we get the wrong mentality, grace does not mean, hey, go live however you want, like a kid at a carnival, here's 50 bucks, go blow it however you want. That's not grace. Grace is you've been freed from sin to live unto righteousness, and now Jesus gives us the ability to do it. Sin's power is broken, which, which really means we never have to sin again. So why do we sin? Because uh, I sin. I'll just speak for myself at this point. I still sin. Maybe you do too. The reason we still sin is because we have a sin nature living inside of us. The Bible calls it the flesh. And the flesh battles against something that's inside of us. Galatians 5 explains very clearly that there's a war going on in the heart of every true Christian. 
It's between the old sinful desires called the flesh and the Holy Spirit of God. Now, who is more powerful in that equation? It's the Spirit of God. And yet some Christians, maybe that's you, some Christians live as if the more powerful entity, the more powerful army in your heart is the flesh. The Spirit of God is far more powerful. Greater is he that is in you that is in the world. And so if you have a more powerful being, the Holy Spirit of God living in your heart as a true believer, you can change. Sin's power is broken, and yet the desires that we have go back to these things. We still live as if we belong to our old selves. So what are we supposed to do? Well, Paul writes in Colossians 3, 5, put those things to death. You see, it's a battle. It's a war. We're not just negotiating against our flesh, saying, oh, sin, you know, uh, you need to stay over there. I'm going to draw the line right here. Don't cross that line. Oh, bad sin. No, it's war. Put it to death. Don't put up with sin in your life anymore. If you're a Christian that's grown comfortable having sin in your life, you're not walking in the Spirit. But the Spirit of God can change you. So what are we to put off? What are we to mortify? What are we to put to death? Anything that doesn't resemble or align with Jesus. Anything that distracts us from serving him. Anything that doesn't look like or help us to think like Jesus, we are to kill and lay aside. Verses 5 through 9 has a whole list of things to put off. Now, when we identify those things, we'll do that in messages to come. Perhaps you have something in your mind right now that you're thinking, e, this sin struggle has been gripping my heart. I need to kill it. I need to lay it aside. How do you do that? The Bible teaches us that we make confession for sin. Proverbs 28, 13. We confess sin. We agree with God. That's what confession means, Right? Confess means to agree with someone, to say the same thing as. So when you are confessing sin, you are saying the same thing about your sin that God says. And the Bible promises you that when you confess your sin, God gives you mercy. He cleanses you, 1 John 1, 9. So there's confession that's involved. There's a forsaking of sin. There's a forgiveness, perhaps, that needs to be asked and restitution that has to be made. Sometimes when we sin... Oftentimes when we sin, we sin against other people. Maybe not directly, but they're part of the, the, the side effects, the collateral damage. And for us to truly grow in Christ, we may have to go look someone in the eye and say, I wronged you, would you please forgive me? In fact, Paul is gonna talk about forgiveness here in verse 13, so we'll get to that topic in a few weeks. There's also not just confession of sin and forgiveness that's, that's being made, but radical removal. Remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that if something is causing you to sin, if your eye is causing you to sin, what does he say? Pluck it out. Is he literally teaching mutilating yourselves? I don't think so. But I think he's, he's teaching us with a graphic point that for sin to be killed in our hearts, we're going to have to make radical removal. We're going to have to get really serious about sin. As the Puritan John Owen said, be killing sin or it will kill you. 
So the first thing, the first step in this process is to put off the old man with his sinful fruits. Second, we renew our minds in true knowledge. This is in verse 10. You've put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Now this idea of renew is throughout the New Testament and it's in several key passages. It's in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, which has the same process here. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new man. It's the same exact commands. Paul also writes in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that transformation comes about, how? By the renewal of our mind. That's three major passages on sanctification that all use the same word, renewal. So what does it mean? The word renewal means to cause something to become new and different with the implication of it becoming superior. When we moved here to Denver, uh, I, I didn't want to be that guy who cheered for other city sports teams hard. Now, the Broncos I can never love, so that, this is not talking about the NFL. But the Major League Baseball, uh, you know, the Rockies, they're harmless, Right? The poor Rockies, they're always just bad. They're kind of lovable. Going to the ballpark is fun. They usually hit a couple of home runs. When I came, and and yeah, I still like the Red Sox that I grew up with, but I I have Rockies gear now. When I go back east, I wear it proudly, and, and people are like, what team is that? Is that a minor league team? I'm like, no. Denver has a baseball team, folks. Okay. Uh, we could argue If you look at the records of the two teams, the Red Sox over the last 10 years and the Rockies over the last 10 years, that when I changed loyalties, if you can put it that way, or added that loyalty, I did not come to a superior team. I may have changed my voting interest, but but it's not like the Rockies were so good that I was leaving behind something so pitiful. When it comes to the Christian life, and we are changing our minds. It's not like we swapped it out and, ah, oh, well, I guess I'm just going to think a little differently now. No, no, no. We changed our thoughts for something so much more glorious that our thoughts and our view of Jesus actually transform us. The renewing of our mind means that our minds are getting better because they're being made more into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about this. How do we grow? But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image to look like him. How? Even as by the spirit of the Lord. That's renewing your mind. And so to renew our minds, we have to get into the scriptures. We have to see Christ in his beauty. We have to think Bible. We have to understand what the word of God says to live it out in our lives. Now, there's a danger here, a pitfall that that Christians who have been in church for a long time can easily slip into. In fact, when I speak to Christian teenagers, I try to mention this because it's so easy. It's this. Bible knowledge equals spiritual maturity. That if I can get it 100% on a Bible quiz, I am godly. Now let's be real careful here. Can you be godly without knowing what the Bible says? No. Ignorance is not bliss in this respect. But can you be, God, can you be uh, worldly 
Can you be full of sin and pride and have a great knowledge of the Bible? Yeah. In fact, there are a lot of people in our world in higher academics that know way more than like all of us in this room combined about the Bible, and they're unbelievers. So Bible knowledge is not enough to make us godly. Why do we study our Bible? Why are we to renew our minds in scriptures? Because it's through the scriptures that we see the face of Jesus. Because in all the world, of all the things that God could have ordained to show us Christ, he chose this sacred book and said, those who love me will study it and will obey it and will live it and they will find life through it. So when we renew our minds we are thinking Bible. We are developing a biblical worldview. We are, as Colossians 3.16 says, letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Does the word dwell richly in your thoughts? How do you know? How do you know if the word dwells richly? Do you start to answer problems or questions with Bible verses? When you're hearing someone talk, you think, oh, that reminds me of that passage. When you're dealing with another individual or another relationship, you think, oh, you know what? There's a Bible character who went through something like that. That's when our thoughts are beginning to think Bible. And one of the only ways to do this, to get to think Bible, is to get in the Word. You cannot think about something that you never read And I know that we just did a survey, and there are many of you who spend time in the Word of God. Praise God. Keep doing it. Because it's through the Word of God that we are transformed. And if you're not in the Word, or if you're like, you know, I'm doing a couple verses, maybe a five-minute devotional, and kind of zipping out the door, you are missing it. I pity you. You're missing it. The God of the universe said, I have everything you need in here for life and godliness. And you're like, oh, I think I'll read this today. It doesn't make much sense. We have to believe and think Bible. But, but renewing also involves believing truth about God, about ourselves, and about our world. Even our secular culture is fascinated with the idea of fake news, Right? You hear, maybe you don't hear about fake news anymore. Maybe it's just each channel does their own thing and that's what they present as news. Well, when you hear something out there, the, the first thing that I think of when I hear or see an article headline and it claims something wild and extravagant, my first thought now is actually, is that even true? Or are they just saying that? I, I can't trust any form of the media. Maybe you feel the same way. We can trust the word of God. We can believe what God says about us, about our world, about himself. Renewing means that we we know what God says and we interpret life through the scriptures, not the other way around. But renewing also means that we have to submit to the truth and practice it. You remember what James 1 says? That famous call to not just be a hearer of the word, but a doer. If I remember correctly, those two words that are used were also used about secular classrooms at the time. And a hearer was someone who came to the lectures but never really passed the course or did the work. A doer was someone who came, listened, and then lived it out. That's what we are to be. 
We have to sometimes check our hearts and say, am I just coming and showing up to church and hearing the preaching and then living without any change in my life? We need to be doers of the word for it to change us. So we put off the old man, we renew our minds and knowledge, and third, we put on the new man. And the new man is the new self, the new you who belongs to Jesus. So the new man or woman, as you grow, should resemble Jesus more and more. So the goal of the Christian life isn't just to do certain things and not do certain things. The goal of the Christian life is to look like and think like and act like Jesus. To be so closely aligned to him that when people see you, they say, you look a little bit like Jesus. That's the greatest compliment a Christian could have. Through that hardship, you looked a little bit like Jesus. Through that conflict, you look like Jesus. Through that blessing, you responded just like Jesus would have. That's the goal for us. That's our highest purpose in life. Our new selves resemble Christ, and so the goal of change that we are aiming for is Christ-likeness, to become like him. So what does putting on involve? Putting on the new man involves replacement. We are producing godly fruits. And here's the thing about fruit. If you were to go to a tree, and if trees could talk, I know I'm stretching it here, but if trees could talk and you asked it, Mr. Tree, how do you produce fruit? He wouldn't say by squeezing harder. Look, I got some fruit. It's not how it works. Fruit is born when the roots are planted deep and get nutrients and the, the tree has life and vitality. That's why Colossians 2, 6, and 7 says that we are to walk in him rooted and built up in the faith. We're planted in the word, and as we abide in the vine, John 15, we grow. And as we grow, we have to continue to practice new habits where we are retraining ourselves to form godly habits that reflect the glory of Christ. And here's where accountability comes in. Sometimes we, we think about accountability as uh, only something that, that teenagers need. But, but actually, what you're doing here today is you're being publicly accountable. You're here present worshiping with other believers, and you're accountable to one another saying, I'm, I'm still confessing, and I'm walking with the Lord today, and I'm trying to grow. Because if you weren't, you wouldn't be here. Accountability is a wonderful thing because it helps us to solidify new habits. Think of accountability as training wheels on a bike. That as a new or a young person, mostly toddlers, are learning how to ride, you put the training wheels on so they don't fall over and over and over again. Well, at some point, the training wheels come off. Now, accountability can't force you to be godly. In my ministry at camp or in, in the residence halls, there, there were some guys that were like, I just need more accountability in my life. And so we talk, and they come in next week to my office and say, or you know, to our meeting and say, I sinned again. And you're like, well, you know, why? Well, you know, and they, they go into it. But then they come back week after week still sinning, and you're like, accountability isn't helping. <laughs> why? Because accountability can't legislate the heart. I can't force you to change. But the Spirit of God can produce change in you. Accountability can only encourage you in what you've chosen to do. Each step in this process is so, so important. Uh, let me use the tree again as a metaphor. If, if you wanted to change an apple tree into an orange tree, if it could be done, what would you do? 
Would you simply pluck off all the fruits that are apples, go to the store, buy a couple of bushels of oranges, bring them back, and duct tape them to the tree? No, that, that wouldn't work. You know what we call that? We call that a redneck tree because it's got duct tape all over it. The only way to change a tree, if it could be done, is to change it how? By going down to the roots. Addressing the roots, because that's where the DNA of the tree is. And then the roots change the trunk, which change, changes the fruit. So the entire step in this process, each step, excuse me, in this process is necessary. You can't just put off and then put on and expect it to be lasting change. You have to go to the roots. You have to renew your heart and your mind. And and one other thing here, total transformation doesn't take place without all three. Now, in, in the original context, these words, put off and put on, were often used about the changing of clothing. That's the way it was used in that Greek culture. To put off something was, was to put off that robe. To put on would be to put on a new change of clothes. The renewal is like showering or bathing in our illustration. Now, I speak to a lot of teenagers about this, okay? So bear with me, all right? If you're at camp and you're running around and it's 98% humidity and 98 degrees, like it was three weeks ago, and you have to go back to your cabin and you have to change out of your sweaty clothes, or ladies, if, if it's you, you, your perspirated clothes, because you don't sweat, you perspire. Uh, and you'd simply just put on you know, your long pants and your polo shirt for service, is that sufficient? To all of us, we would say, no. To the junior high boy, he would say, yes. <laughs> in fact, I had a junior high boy tell me that Axe body spray was shower in a bottle. And I said, no, 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 no. That is not shower in a bottle, my friend. <laughs> shower is in the showers, okay? You have to go and cleanse yourself, well, what if you decided to take off all of those dirty or sweaty clothes and you took a shower and then you put the same clothes back on? What good does that do? All three steps in the process spiritually are necessary as well. If you don't put on new fruit, if you don't seek to put on new fruit, that is, because the Spirit produces it in us, then there's no change. If you don't put off the bad, then it's carnality. All three steps are necessary. So what does it look like to put this process in action? And now we're back full circle to our tree again, okay? The tree is simply a model to help you diagnose spiritual problems, and it differentiates between causes and symptoms. If you go to the doctor's office and complain of a cough and a fever, you don't want him just to hand you some cough medicine and cough drops. You're like, I could have done that myself. You want the doctor to treat the problem, the cause, not just the symptom. It's the same way spiritually. The issues that we have that are coming out of our life, Jesus said, are out of the abundance of our hearts. So the tree teaches you to look beyond the fruit into the root. So how does it work, okay? The fruits are, and I know it's real small print, the fruits are your outer person. What people see, and on the left side there are sinful fruits, on the right side there are godly fruits. It always cracked me up a little bit that there are like double the sinful fruits on this diagram. 
because they know the human heart and uh, we're, we're, we're sinful people. Now, in your life, you are not going to have exclusively sinful fruits or godly fruits. There's a mixture going on. But when the Lord convicts you about a sinful fruit, instead of just trying to do the redneck apple tree thing, you have to go back down to the roots. So how do you do that? Well, the trunk is what's called the heart. In the trunk, we identify our sinful desires and our wants. These are the things that we are desiring when we sin, the motive behind it. And even if you are not consciously thinking about the motive, there is a reason you are sinning. There's something you want outside of the will of God or against what God has said. And to, uh, to take this, <clears throat> to take this sinful thing that we are pursuing, we have to justify it to ourselves. And so there are lies that we believe. There are excuses we make that in our sinful hearts satisfy us enough that, that it justifies our sinful actions. And if, if we don't address these desires, it's like playing whack-a-mole. You remember that game? Great game. Okay. If you go down to the arcade down by Pikes Peak, they still have a couple. I went there last summer. The thing about whack-a-mole is no matter how many times you swing and hit that stupid animal, it still pops up in a different place. And if you don't address your desires, you can knock off, hey, you know what? I'm not angry over in this instance, or I'm not jealous about this thing. But if you've not addressed the desire of the heart, then the jealousy is just going to show up somewhere else. You may have eliminated that one expression, but you've not solved the problem. So we have to, to, to look underneath the surface to the lies that we believe. Because ultimately, we believe that life will work better if I take matters into my own hands rather than doing it God's way. Now, no one would say that. When I'm getting frustrated with a member of my family, when I'm complaining under my breath, I'm not admitting consciously, life is going to work better for me if I'm complaining right now. But that's essentially what I'm believing. So to overcome temptation, we have to discern the lies that we're believing and fight that with God's truth. And that's where we arrive at the roots. The roots are truths about God, ourselves, and the world around us. So we have to understand what God says and who God is. This is our view of God, and it makes all the difference in the world. Because if you know God and you believe him and you trust him, that is going to spill out of your heart into the fruit of your life. A.W. Tozer began his classic book, Knowledge of the Holy, with this line. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When we sin, we put ourselves on the throne of our heart and we move Jesus aside. And so to, to truly be transformed, we have to identify how we got there so that we can then change. So at the roots... We have to believe the truth about God, and then we have to fight the sinful desire with faith. Every spiritual battle you and I face is a battle of faith. Am I going to believe what God says or what I say? Am I going to believe that when I listen to the Lord, that I'm going to be satisfied and life is going to work? Or am I going to take matters into my own hands and do it my way? Sounds an awful lot like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? 
Has God surely said, oh, well, I think I can make life work if I do it this way. We are no different. When we sin, we believe something here on earth will satisfy us more than God. And we've been duped. We believe the lie and we fall. When we correctly identify the truth, though, that replaces the desires for sin with a desire to please God and live out his word and a a desire to live by faith, which then produces godly fruits in our life. Now, what's the the place of scripture memory? Because you've probably been told correctly that to overcome any sort of temptation, you need to memorize scripture about it. That's true. But why? Is scripture memory like a lucky rabbit's foot that, oh, I'm being tempted to, to, do, uh, to slander again. Oh, I gotta whip out my rabbit's foot and I'll rub it. And ah, oh, the temptation's gone. No. Tempt, uh, uh, scripture memory, that is, is the lightning bolt that crashes into our tunnel vision when sin is threatening to overtake us. It reminds us, this is what God has said. This is who God is. And it gives us grace to obey. The scriptures is what transforms us. So how does this all work? Let me give you one closing illustration, then we'll be done. Because over the next few weeks, what we'll do is we'll take each of these issues and try to work through this process so you can see it in action. Okay, let's take the, the, the sinful fruit of anxiety. Because I know no one here struggles with anxiety, so I'm just going to pick something no one struggles with, okay? I think we all struggle with anxiety or fear or worry, sister vices here. Now, the interesting thing about sinful fruit is that it never comes alone. Fear and worry and anxiety will spill out into other things. It'll spill out into how we treat other people, maybe with manipulation or stonewalling them. It'll, it'll come out in how we behave, maybe obsessive-compulsive. Maybe it'll be, in extreme cases, lead to hoarding. Sometimes people pursue drugs or alcohol overuse, uh, drug and alcohol substance abuse to, to try to make them feel anxious. They're masking their pain. So there's a whole lot of things that come with this. But what is anxiety? Anxiety is the emotion of uncertainty, Jim Berg says. What if I don't get what I need, in other words? What if something in life is not going to do what I want it to do? Well, what's the desire? That's the fruit. Let's go a layer deeper. What is someone thinking that is anxious about a situation. What are they wanting? They're wanting, perhaps, control. Maybe they're wanting a little bit of security. They're wanting to know what they cannot know. They want to know the future. And so these thoughts are starting to creep in and they're gnawing at them and these desires to to feel safe, to solve the problems that I have, that peace of mind, to be liked by other people, to be in control. I mentioned that. These then feed into lies. And what are some of the lies that people believe when they struggle with anxiety? Here's, Here's three. This is not exhaustive. Lie number one, I can be content and have peace in life if I can just adjust certain things. If I can control something, then I can have peace because I'm in control. Here's a second lie. I must be fully in control for life to work. Here's a third one. I will never be safe if I don't know how things turn out. If there's any sort of uncertainty about what goes ahead, I can't do it. 
I have to be in a perfectly climate-controlled environment. Well, when we talk about lies like that, what do you notice about them? They're unreasonable. Can you ever fully control a situation? No. Can you know the future? No. Here's, here are the truths that we have to fight this anxiety with. Your contentment does not depend on circumstances or control. Your contentment depends on Christ. He is sufficient for you. Second truth, you, can prote- you can't protect yourself. You can't. You can't think of everything there is to, to guard against in life. But God can. God is the protector of the believer. He is their shield and their fortress. Here's a third truth. Though I will never fully be in control, God is always in control, and he is wise, and he is good, and I can trust him. And so at the heart of the issue is, will I believe him? It's a matter of faith. Am I going to take God at his word, and am I going to take what the word of God says literally? And if I do, if I say, Lord, forgive me, I I, I turn away from these things, I confess my anxiety, I receive your grace, and we start believing that that he's sufficient, then I have all I need. I don't need anything else. That thing that I want to know, I can be content with not knowing because I have Christ. Though I don't have security in my environment, I have God, I can rest in him. If I believe that God is in control, I can trust him that he'll work all things together for good. And I can actually look forward with anticipation and joy at to what he does. And what, what type of fruit do you think that produces? Peace? Joy? Patience? Sounds, sounds an awful lot like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And how did you get there? Did you get there because you simply tried to have peace? Newsflash, if you say, I need more peace, I need more peace, you know what that does? It doesn't create peace. (laughs) It creates the opposite. But by going back to the roots and saying, Lord, I don't know, I can't control, I am not this, but you are, as you renew your mind and make it better, his grace kicks in, And he changes you. And that peace and that transformation is lasting. How do Christians change? Through grace-driven effort, by following the put-off-renew, put-on process, as pictured by this simple little tree. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we need your grace. We need your help. Because we've all tried harder to work harder to change, and and we've all failed. I've been there even recently. And we need your power. We confess our inability. We confess our limitations. And yet, this is the beauty of the gospel, is now in Christ, we are united to the God of the universe who has no limitations, who is all wise, who is good, who is eternal, who cares deeply for us, who is gentle with us. I pray that that for those here today who don't know Christ as Savior, that they would accept him. And those that are struggling 
to think that they can even change it all. They need hope. I pray that they would receive it and that they would begin the process of confessing and forsaking, changing the way they think, and trusting you, and that they would experience lasting victory as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.